Well, we are still in the middle of our series on the book of Jonah. Now, we're going to be wrapping it up in the next two weeks. So we're going to look at all of chapter 3 today, all of chapter 4 tomorrow. The challenge is simply this. You know where we're going, so take a little bit of time this week, open the Bible, read the book of Jonah chapter 4, and just think about where we might be going. Or take a look at chapter 3 after we explore it today, and, or read through the whole book. It's only four chapters. We've been in it for five weeks, and we've got a few more weeks left, and it really is a fascinating, fascinating book. But we're going to be wrapping it up. So those of you that thought we were never going to make it through it, we actually are. No problem. We've got two more weeks left. We've started going a chapter at a time, so we're blazing through. But my whole point or look at this book of Jonah was really out of a sort of response for something that God was doing in my life. And God was, was really pushing me to release control of my life. And so the idea of this series was this picture of what it might look like if you and I surrendered our lives completely and totally to Jesus Christ, if we let our lives get out of control. Because one of the great tension points and struggles, as I've mentioned week after week after week, is this idea of control in our relationships with Christ. We want control and God calls us to give it up. The great irony, of course, is that there is no such thing as control. You and I don't have it. We can't really control anything. It's just a simple illusion. But it, it presents the idea of safety and comfort. If I can control my life, if I have some kind of say into it, then I'm, I feel comfortable. I can follow Jesus just enough to say I'm following Christ, but not really have to actually risk anything. And so we, we struggle for control over our lives, whether it's a relationship, whether it's work, whether it's money, whether it's just our own personal calling, we really wrestle with the Lord. So we've looked at Jonah as a picture of this sort of battle of control. And at the, at the core, the book of Jonah is about Jonah's wrestling with God. Jonah fighting for control of his own life and God calling him to give it up. And we've played with this one word a lot in this sort of series, and that word is surrender. The idea of what it might look like if we relinquished control of our lives and gave up and gave it over to the Lord, which is really what Jonah's dealing with. Is, is, is he at a place where he's willing to surrender his life. Now, if you're here for the first time, I'm going to do a brief catch you up to speed with where we are because we're getting towards the end of the book. Now, we're halfway through, and it's important to know how we got to where we are. So here's what we've learned about Jonah over the past, really over the past four weeks. Jonah is a prophet of God. He is a mouthpiece of the Lord. At those, in those days, God spoke through prophets to the people and to the kings. He used people as mouthpiece. A lot of the Old Testament is filled with the letters of these prophets. Nahum and Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah, all those guys are prophets of the Lord. Well, Jonah was a prophet, and he, his ministry, his, his time took place during the reign of a guy by the name of Jeroboam II. It was after the kingdom of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom in, called Judah, which was where Jerusalem was, and the northern kingdom, which was retaining the name of Israel. And eventually, the northern kingdom was going to fall to the Assyrians, the southern kingdom was going to fall to the Babylonians, they were going to be conquered, but they were in mayhem. And God raised up prophets to speak directly to the kings, and he raised up Jonah in the northern kingdom to speak to the northern kingdom. Well, Jonah's ministry is taking place, and he gets a word from the Lord, which means God spoke to him either audibly or either in a vision, and gave him a directive, a direct call. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. 
Now, we know from the past four weeks that Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were, they were the dominant power at the time. They were barbaric, and they were tough, and they were awful. You know, Nahum writes about the things that took place during the Assyrian reign of, like, you know, commercial exploitation and witchcraft and prostitution and murdering of women and children. I mean, they were barbaric people. And they were just to the north of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were pressing down. And everyone was afraid of the Assyrians. So God says to Jonah, Jonah, go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and I want you to preach against it because the wickedness of this empire has come up before me. So how does Jonah respond? Well, we know that Jonah just flat out runs. The Assyrian Empire is way over here, and Jonah takes off to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to a port called Joppa. He hops on a boat, and he sets sail for a Spanish coastal town called Tarshish which is literally on the end of the other known world. If you can imagine a map of the Middle East, you've got the Assyrians way up here, and you've got way over there on the coast of Spain is Tarshish. Jonah takes off. He just flat out runs from the Lord. Now, we've spent a lot of time over the past few weeks kind of talking about why Jonah was running, but the point was Jonah ran. And he said, boarded a boat, he got out onto the sea, and a great storm came upon him. In fact, the text tells us that God sent the storm. Actually, it literally says God hurled the tempest. And the storm was so violent, the boat began to break apart, and the sailors and the captain start freaking out, and they're throwing everything overboard, and they're waking up Jonah, and they're going, what do we do? And Jonah says, look, it's my fault, I'm running from God, so throw me into the ocean. And it will go calm. And the sailors say, no way, we're throwing you to the ocean. We're not going to kill you. That's crazy. So they try to row for land. The sea gets rougher and rougher. And finally they call out to God and they say, God, if we throw this man over, he's going to die. He's going to die. You don't hold us accountable for killing this man. If you are telling us to throw him over, we will do it. They take Jonah and they just heave him overboard. And as soon as he hits the water, it says that the ocean goes calm. And the sailors freak out. I mean, they are just in fear of God. It says they began to offer sacrifices. They make vows to God. And they began to worship. And we see this change of life in the sailors. And right about that moment, Jonah begins to sink into the depths. And God provides a great fish, which is what we all know the story of Jonah to be about. God provides a great fish, not some kind of whale. The Bible just says the Hebrew word there is dag, which is just fish. And you add the word great to it, and we know that it was a huge one, and it swallows Jonah. And a lot of us get caught up here saying, oh, that can't really happen. Here's the thing. It's God. It can't happen. Just let it go. So God provides a fish. It swallows Jonah, and Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. And last week, we talked all of chapter 2 is devoted to Jonah's prayer from inside the belly of that fish. And we looked at it from a couple, like four different standpoints of really what our life should look like when we come to a place where we're totally surrendered. And Jonah is broken. He's surrendered. He's inside the belly of this fish, and he begins to cry out to God. And his prayer is, is full of honesty. It's full of the reality of the situation that he's in. And it was an honest cry. And last week we talked about how sometimes our prayers aren't real honest. We tell God what we think he wants to hear, or we tell him what we want him to hear. And we talked about how Jonah's prayer had an element of confession, that he came to a place where, where he was willing to confess his own disobedience. And, and confession takes honesty one step farther, right? I mean, we can all be honest and never really admit to anything. But confession is that part that says, God, I know I've been running. I know I've failed you. I know I've fallen on my face, and I'm broken. Confession is a cry for brokenness. So Jonah's prayer inside the belly of this fish was a cry from an honest cry of brokenness. And we see through that prayer, as we looked at last week, that it was riddled with thankfulness. 
Jonah was grateful. Jonah was having a change of heart inside the belly of this fish. Now, Jonah wasn't thankful that God had provided for him or that God was going to provide for him. Jonah didn't know if he was going to survive. He had yet to see this great fish as an instrument of rescue. He was inside the belly, but Jonah was thankful that God had turned his rebellious heart around. See, Jonah was thankful in the middle of his circumstance. And we talked a lot about last week about how you and I have got to become thankful for where we are, not where we want to be or where we think God's going to take us or what life would look like if we finally got out of this financial struggle or out of this relationship. We've got to learn that following Christ means we're thankful in this exact moment because God's turning our rebellious hearts. And then finally, we talked about the end of Jonah's prayer. He is ready to be moved to action. We're going to talk a little bit more about that this week. But he was ready to do something. And a lot of times our prayers and our cries to God are just filled with hollow words. We really don't want God to move us. We just want to say it so we feel better about ourselves. But Jonah came to a place where he was willing to just say, I'm going to renew all my vows to you. And then at the end of that chapter, we see this little gem. Chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And God commanded, and the fish vomited Jonah up onto dry land, right? So here's Jonah sitting on dry land, covered in fish juice, waiting, just waiting. And I kind of, you know, if there's anything I'd like to see in the Bible, you know, you're supposed to say, I want to see Jesus. I want to see this fish vomit Jonah onto dry land. That has got to be amazing. But anyway, here's Jonah, seaweed, the whole bit, sitting on dry land, and we're going to pick up in chapter 3. Jonah has had a transformational experience. And now just keep in mind all that he's gone through in the past four days. I mean, really, in the past four days, from running, from shipwrecks, to almost drowning, to being swallowed by a fish, to having your heart broken, to crying out for God, for being flooded with daylight and finding yourself on the dry land again. I mean, this is a, a remarkable series of things that's taken place. But we're going to look at Jonah chapter 3 today and uh, really explore the idea of revival and compassion. And we're going to see revival take place in the heart of Jonah. We're going to see revival take place in the lives of the Ninevites. And we're going to talk about how God calls you and I to a revival that's motivated and stirred by his great compassion. So before we open God's word together, I know that was a lot of catching us up, but it's all right. It won't kill you. Um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much just for the moments to gather in your presence this morning in the midst of all the things that are going on in our lives. God, to take a few moments and be still and open your word together as a community, just to, to open this truth and ask you to speak to us, Lord, that we know that you meet us exactly where we are and we gather as a community and we say, God, we want to be a people who follow you, who are moved by you, who are challenged by you, who are authentically in love with you. Take just a moment right where you are and just whatever you've got going on today that is distracting you from the Lord, whatever that is, we all have those little things. Whatever it is, just ask God to remove it for the next few moments. Just ask God to remove those things or that thing for the next few moments. take a second and pray for someone beside you even if you don't know them we do this every week so that we'll be in the habit of praying for each other but pray for someone beside you just pray that they would have an encounter with the Lord this morning
Lord, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. God, we know that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. That's what you tell us in your word. God, your word is powerful and it is true. Um, we may not like it all the time, but it doesn't make it less true. So penetrate our hearts this morning and teach us. Humble us and prepare us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Jonah, chapter 3, we're going to go ahead and read through the whole thing, and then we'll just kind of do what we do, unpack it together. So Jonah's sitting on dry land, covered in fish parts and seaweed, and chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city, and a visit required three days. And on the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God, and they declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news had reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they um, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he threatened. I mean, it's a pretty remarkable series of events. I mean, here we have Jonah sitting on dry land after going through all the things that he went through, and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And the word of the Lord says, Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I will give you, which is remarkably similar to the message he first got from the Lord. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it was the first one. This one was go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I will give you. It's basically the exact same call. So how does Jonah respond this time? Simple, Jonah obeys. Now, Jonah's learned his lesson a little bit, but Jonah obeys and he goes to Nineveh. It says that he shows up in the city, and the city was so great that a visit required three days. Now, scholars have gone back and forth on why it would require three days, but the bottom line is that it's a huge city. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people, and with the outskirts and its suburbs and all those things, I mean, a visit literally would require by foot a walkthrough, about a one to two to three days to actually go through, and once you start talking to people, it's a three-day visit to get from one end of the city to the other. It's a huge place. So Jonah goes to the great city of Nineveh and he proclaims the message that God gave him, which is 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. I mean, that is essentially the message. I think it's eight English words and really the Hebrew is only five. So it's a tiny sentence. It's not some big, long kind of expositional, you know, treaty on all that is, you know, about this country and how they need to turn. He just simply said, look, 40 days and you're going to be overthrown. That's it. And how do the Ninevites respond? Well, 
They basically just absolutely believe God and turn their complete lives around. I mean, we'd expect something totally different. We'd actually expect them to seize Jonah, capture him, throw rocks at him, take him out of town and beat him and kill him and leave him for dead. But they don't. Jonah proclaims a five-word message and it says they believed God. And it says from the greatest to the least, they quit eating. They started fasting and they put on sackcloth, which is really just a symbol of mourning and humility and repentance. It's like putting on a burlap burlap sack and just saying, we are nothing. The word reaches the king. The king rises from his throne and removes his robes, which basically means he's removing himself of his royal position. He takes off his royal robe, steps away from the throne, puts on sackcloth, a burlap sack, and he sits in the dirt. This was a, a, t- a custom at the time, and we see it happen in the life of Job and a bunch of others. When mourning takes place, when repentance takes place, we get as low as we can. We put on the most, you know, kind of the, the, a garment that draws as little attention to us as possible, and we sit in the dirt and we fast. And that is what's taking place in this entire city. From the greatest to the least, they believed God and they mourned and fasted and repented. And the king issues a decree. And decrees by the king are really important. They are to be followed or you will die. And the king issued a decree that says, coming from me and all of my nobles, let no one eat or drink, not even your animals. Put sackcloth on every piece of livestock you have and all of your children and yourself and seek God. Turn from your wicked ways and your violence, and maybe God will have compassion on us. And then in verse 10, we see God kind of respond this way. When God saw all that they've done, he had great compassion on them, and he didn't bring upon them the harm that he had essentially threatened. I mean, this is an unbelievable thing that's taking place. I mean, this is really remarkable. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that are having their lives completely turned upside down. And before we really kind of deal with the Ninevites and this sort of revival that's breaking out in the streets of Nineveh, we have to deal with the first few verses, which are really about Jonah. The rest of the chapter is about the Ninevites, and we'll get there. But something is, is transpiring in the life of Jonah that we just can't miss. And it's really important because if we overlook this to try and get on with the Ninevites, we're going to lose sight of the revival that's taking place inside of Jonah, which I really think is what God's calling to take place inside of you and I. I mean, Jonah's been through an unbelievable amount of stuff. I mean, life has been really, really bad for Jonah. God has called him. Jonah has run. Jonah brought a huge calamity, great peril upon himself and upon other people, upon the sailors, to the point where the boat he was in was breaking apart. Jonah was running so far from the Lord that he was willing to die. Drown me. He gets thrown into the ocean. He's swallowed by a great fish, comes face to face with God, has this moment of surrender, finds himself on dry land. I mean, these are a crazy few days for Jonah. But look what takes place in the life of Jonah. God calls Jonah a second time. Now this is really important, and you can't miss this. I know we know that we think that God is a God of second chances. Yes, God is. We know that. It's called grace. 
But God calls Jonah again. God, God's call for Jonah is really not unique in Scripture. God calls people again all the time. It happens in Abraham and Moses and Peter. We can look at Bible superheroes and we see God calling them again, even after they fail him, let him down, sell him out, or turn away. God calls again. But what's important about God calling Jonah again is that God's call the second time is exactly the same as God's call the first time. It's not like God's call version 2.0 where he says, hey, look, Jonah, I realize that you're not quite man enough to handle the first one, so I'm going to make the second one a little bit easier. You can take a few friends. Here's what's going to happen. They're not going to kill you. Don't worry. They're actually going to have an amazing turnaround. I'm going to let you know so that you don't freak out. God's call for Jonah is exactly the same. Exactly the same. Go to the great city and tell him what I'm going to tell you. He doesn't even tell Jonah what to say. He just says, go. And how does Jonah respond? A little bit different than how Jonah responds the first time. Jonah obeys. Now, there's something significant about Jonah's obedience because it really is a picture that what's transpired in this side, this whale, this prayer that we examined Last week, this surrender, this changed heart is real. It's not just, God, I'm yelling these things out to you so that if you save me, right, then I promise I'll go to church every single Sunday. I mean, Jonah was evidence that his life was changed because his life looked different. Now, when you and I get in all kinds of perilous situations and struggles get tough, man, we make all kinds of promises to God, most of which we have no intention of really keeping. We're just begging God to lighten up. But Jonah's life change is evidenced by the fact that when God calls again the second time with the exact same call, Jonah goes. You know, I was really convicted as I looked at this over how this transpires in, in my life and in your life, in the lives of you and me. Because it really is, is remarkable because God calls us and gives us a second chance. We know that. God calls us again. But the call that God gives us really is always the same. Now, we wish this wasn't the case. Let's be real honest. We wish that when we failed God, when we ignored God, when we ran from God, when we, when we turned our back and said, God, I can't trust you that much. When we run and God finally gets a hold of us, we wish that God's call a second time was to say, Treb, listen, I know, man, this is so hard for you. I know that this is tearing you apart. So look, I'm going to make it really easy. Take one step at a time and follow me, and I'm going to show you exactly what to do at every single turn, and you can do it. You know, the reality is that God's call for me is exactly the same. He calls me to trust. You know what that means? It means you have to deal with whatever it is you're running from. God will not make it easier. God will not change it. Because, see, God is in pursuit of your life. God is not in the business of making things easier for us so that we can finally figure out a way to give our lives away where it doesn't cost us anything. See, how hard is it for Jonah to follow God to Nineveh if God looks at Jonah and says, Jonah, here's how we're getting to Nineveh. I've got a guy that's coming. He's got a really nice chariot. It's got velvet seats, and you're really going to like it. Actually, he's got a chef, and he's going to cook for you. When we get there, you're going to proclaim just five words. That's it. I promise you're not going to have to memorize some kind of speech. And when you do, the people are going to have their lives changed. No one's going to threaten you or kill you or harm you. It's not even going to be that hard of a journey. I just need you to do this. Jonah risks zero. See, God doesn't need Jonah. God could use the rocks. God could make the sand cry out for his glory. God was using Jonah for Jonah, not for God. 
See, you and I so often get wrapped up in the idea that, that God needs us for something. The reality is God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's God. God's call for you is for you. It's for your growth and your trust. Not because the Ninevites weren't going to come to know the Lord if Jonah didn't show up. God could use a wind. I mean, he hurled the tempest. God's call for Jonah was for Jonah. See, God withholds information from us to cause us to seek him more intently. God's call doesn't change. If you're sitting here running from the Lord, don't think that God's going to make it easier for you the longer you hold out. The longer you tell God, look, I just can't handle this. You think God's going to make it easier? No. He's going to keep pursuing and pursuing and pursuing until finally you just say, I give up. I'm going to go. I'm going to do. I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to, whatever that thing is that you're hoping God will quit pressing on your heart, he won't. God is in relentless pursuit of your life. See, I, I like to hold out. I like to tell God I hear him and then take a few months to pray about something. But God's telling me I don't need to pray about it. What's God going to say? Oh, hey, wait, I changed my mind. No, God said, no, of course. I'm the one who told you in the first place. Just do it. Follow me. Trust me. Don't get your friends together and ask me if you think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. I told you. Go. Do. Let go. Free. Forgive. Whatever. The question really for you and I is God calls us again. I mean, again and again, he's in pursuit of our life. God won't ease up. The call is the same. The question is, how do we respond? See, Jonah had this transforming moment in the fish. And we're going to see a lot about Jonah. That Jonah's not a perfect guy. We're going to look in chapter 4 and Jonah's still got a mess going on. But Jonah had a surrendered moment in the belly of that fish and said, God, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Because you have turned my rebellious heart around. Jonah didn't go because he was afraid of what was going to happen next. Jonah went because God had changed his heart. The question for you and I in the middle of all that for us is, is how are we going to respond? I mean, come on, let's be honest. For four weeks, I've been asking the exact same question about 500 different ways. If you're not listening, you got to start listening. We're not doing anything new. The past four weeks has been, what is it going to take for you to surrender your life completely and totally to Jesus Christ in whatever that area is that he is calling you to? The question is, how do you respond This is what Jonah's faced with. How do I respond to the call of God? For my desire to control my life and God's call for me to lay it down. Jonah's heart is having a revival break out in it. The question is, is for you and I, are we? We'll deal with that again in a minute. So then we've got to do business with these Ninevites because, I mean, Jonah's having this remarkable experience, but really the, the only first three verses deal with Jonah. The rest deal with the Ninevites. And there's... I mean, you got to understand, this is huge. This is one of the greatest revivals recorded in all of human history. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that completely turn their lives around. Now, the Ninevites don't do it perfectly because we come to find out later, they're still an awful people and they end up taking over the, uh, the whole northern kingdom of Israel. But for that moment, that city, for those times, they have a transformational experience. And it is very powerful. In fact, it begins with something very simple. So verse 5 in chapter 3 says this. Well, actually, the the beginning of verse 4 says, Jonah goes in and proclaims five words, or eight English words, right? Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And he says that he did that on the very first day, which means when God called Jonah to go and preach, 
Jonah didn't go to the town and set up a bunch of places and see where would be the best avenue. I mean, Jonah just walked into the city and said, hey, is anybody listening? Here's the deal. 40 more days, Nineveh's going to be overturned. Yeah, you heard me. Well, you know, you heard me. 40 more days. And just went up the streets. Day one. And it says that the Ninevites, verse 5, what did they do? The Ninevites believed God. I find this awesome because the Ninevites didn't believe Jonah. They didn't believe, you know, that Jonah was saying something spectacular. They believed that those five words, for whatever reason, were coming straight from God. They believed God. They didn't call a committee together and try and discern what was happening or figure out a way to to maneuver around this. They just believed God. What this is pointing to is evidence of who is in absolute control. God is in absolute control. Jonah just spoke five words. God moved in the hearts and lives of people. You think it's Jonah because he's some kind of great speaker? Five words, really? God is moving, and he's moving in the hearts and the lives of people. The reality is, is that it has nothing to do with who it was that communicate, was communicating the message and everything to do with who was the message giver. You see, God was the message giver. God gives the message. God gives the fish. God gives the storm. I mean, this is what God is doing. God gave Jonah the word, and God moved in the hearts of the Ninevites. So the reason I have you open up your Bible, and the reason I preach the way I do, which is right through text, is because I don't care if you like what I say. Deal with the word. Deal with God. But the Ninevites believed God. And then what did they do? They took action. So they heard God's word, and immediately they declared a fast, all of them. All of them. Hundreds of thousands of people. Not just like a small group of people saying, look, we're the real ones that are having life change. Let's huddle up over here and try and get everyone to get on board and fast and maybe God will save our lives. It says all of them, from the greatest to the least, declared a fast. In other words, we're not eating because we are going to seek God. They removed their clothes and they put on clothes of humility and they repented. I mean, it's amazing. Even the king stands up, removes himself from sort of his kingly duties and his kingly garments, and he sits in the dirt. They believed God, and that belief moved them to action. We talked a little bit about this last week with our prayer life, but really, it's remarkable. I mean, they they were so struck by the word of God that they were moved to action. They were called to do something. And more so, they were called to, at the very end, repent of their specific sin. So the king issues a decree and he says, anyone, everyone, repent from your violence and your wicked ways. You see, what happened is the Ninevites recognized what they had going on in their life, the sin that they had steeped into who they were, part of their makeup. And the king calls everyone to call upon God and turn from it. It wasn't like they just took action and sat in the dirt and said, God, we're really sorry. They decided they had to stop the violence and stop the wickedness, that they had to turn their lives around, that they had to stop that specific action. So they believed God, they took action, they stopped the specific thing that was disobedience in their life. I mean, they were having a radical moment of revival. 
you know, like Jonah, we kind of have to deal with these verses ourselves. I mean, we dealt with what, what transpired with Jonah, but, but like that, we have to deal with these because there's some, some really powerful stuff here that I didn't want to come across as I was reading this text because of how it convicted me. But the reality is, is, is we're really stuck with a couple of questions. And the first one is, are you listening? Am, am I really listening to God's voice? I mean, week in and week out, we come here and we talk about these things and, and we say these things out loud and you may feel like God is speaking to you and whispering to you, but, but are you really listening? Do you really hear what God is calling you to, challenging you to, and moving in your heart to do? Because if you're really listening, it moves us to something. It can't just be lip service. At some point in time, we have to become doers of God's word. But our churches are filled with people on Sunday morning that want to show up and be entertained. And we look at worship as to the value it has for my entertainment. Do I like the songs? Do I not like the songs? Is it too loud, too soft, traditional, contemporary, whatever? What kind of preacher is that person? Do I identify with them? Are they challenging me? We have all these questions that say, how do you entertain me? What do you have for me? And we walk out these doors and we say, man, that was really good, or I heard that. And you wonder why every single week we come back into this place, God is saying the same thing to your heart over and over and over again. I mean, are we really listening? Do we really hear God? Because if we hear God, we've got to believe God. And the belief in God should push us to action. We should not be able to remain the same. You know, in Scripture, when people encountered Jesus Christ, they could not remain the same. They either were radically transformed or they were radically disappointed, but they never remained the same. They were changed forever by the encounter. If we hear God and believe God, we cannot remain the same. We have got to be moved to action, which means it's time to stop thinking about what you need to do, need to let go of, need to be free of, and start actually doing it. And you know what? For some of us in here, it might mean a call to some very specific action. Stop doing this. Repent from that. For the Ninevites, it was turning from their wickedness and violence. Those were the things that were separating them as wickedness before God. So if it's that exact same thing that's taken root and hold in your life and you still aren't moving toward being free from it, repenting from it, turning away from it, walking out from it, whatever... You've got to ask yourself, are you really believing what God is telling you? Or are you just showing up in this place saying, entertain me? And the truth is, I mean, the real core truth is that I'm not saying anything that we haven't said every Sunday for about a year and a half. At some point in time, we've got to deal with what God is doing in our lives and say, God, I trust you enough to follow you. Whether that's a radical call in my life, or whether it's simply calling that person I haven't spoken to in 17 years, or if it's taking that one secret area of my heart that I want no one to know about, and completely and totally turning away from it. You see, God's call and voice should push us to action. There's revival breaking out in Jonah's life. There's revival breaking out in the streets of Nineveh. The promise is that through Jesus Christ, God redeems our lives and our hearts. He restores and renews us. And there should be revival that's breaking out in our lives every day. There should be revival that's breaking out in our lives. A revival that burns like wildfire that calls us to action, belief, 
and transformation. But there's one thing that I don't want to miss, I just want to touch on real quickly as we wrap up, that, that is sort of supersedes all of those things. And it's right there in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their ways, he had compassion on them. You know, all of this begins with God's compassion. God had compassion on Jonah. God had compassion on the Ninevites. Jonah the runner, Nineveh the wicked, God had compassion. His compassion is staggering. It knows no end. You know, there's a difference between mercy and compassion. We often use those words interchangeably in our sort of definitions of Christian terms. But mercy really is the idea that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, period. That's God's mercy. God doesn't treat Jonah, he doesn't treat the Ninevites as their sins deserve. God doesn't treat you and I as our sins deserve. The reality is that our sin deserves separation from God forever. We deserve to go to hell because of the sin in our life, period. The fact that God gave Jesus Christ that we might know him and have a relationship with him is evidence of God's mercy. But God's compassion, while similar, is very different. Because compassion, the definition literally of compassion is sort of the understanding of one's struggle and hurt and a desire to relieve it. See, compassion is that part that identifies with our pain and struggle and has a deep-seated desire to relieve it. See, God didn't just show mercy to the Ninevites, and he didn't just show mercy to Jonah. God had compassion on them, which means God's extravagant loving heart was wrapped up in who they were. You know, at the end of the day, for you and I, this isn't just about not doing things so that God won't be angry or so that God will keep calling us. It's because God's loving heart is wrapped up in your life. It's because God cares deeply. It's not just about a God that calls for the sake of doing something. It's because God loves you so desperately that his heart breaks over your sin, that his compassion, his desire to relieve your pain and hurt is so deep, so deep that he calls you to something greater. You know, oftentimes we just think that walking away from sin is just because God wants us to be perfect. And the reality is it's because God doesn't want us to hurt. See, God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but one step farther, God has compassion on us, which means God hurts when we hurt and wants to relieve us from our pain of sin and death and struggle. In other words, God identifies with where you are. He's not just sitting up in heaven pointing his finger going, change, change, change. But God says, I have come down in the person of Jesus Christ to die so that you might have revival break out in your heart. So that your revival is not spawned by what not to do, but instead spawned by the love that I have for you. See, the revival that should be breaking out in your heart and my heart should be spurred by the fact that God is so deeply and so desperately in love with us, with this marvelous experience that we have, that the revival should be one of joy and redemption and restoration and renewal. And not one because we won't perish but because God has given his life that we might know him. So as we continue and close our time in worship this morning, as the band comes back down front, I want to challenge you with those thoughts, which is really God calls, God pursues, and God calls again. How do you and I respond? The same revival is taking place in the heart of Jonah, is taking place in the streets of Nineveh, and should be taking place in our heart every single day. Our churches on Sunday should be filled with the revival of the people of God. An outbreak of lives that say, God, you have redeemed me. 
And my revival of joy is because your compassion overwhelms my life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the moments to gather in this place that you love us and care for us. And that God, the same revival that breaks out in the streets in Nineveh should be breaking out our hearts this morning. The fact, God, that our worship at times is passionless is evidence that we have yet to really believe what you've done in us. Because, God, if we believed it and it called us to action, this place could not contain our worship. It would be an explosion of your amazing love and grace. And so, God, we ask that just for this brief moment, just for the next few moments as we proclaim and worship and sing, that it might be a picture of the revival that is taking place in our hearts. God, we love you and the fact that your compassion overwhelms us is staggering and we are undeserving. So God, we celebrate great revival this morning that's breaking out in our lives and in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together and worship this morning.